the book of Jonah. I have preached through the book of Jonah before. It was 14 years ago. In fact, I pulled out my notes. I went, oh, man, this is, this is going to be a lot more work <laughs> than I thought it was going to be. But I, but I have been um, drawn back to its story and its truths for us as a, a people of God, as a local church. You can find the book of Jonah in your Bible. It is at the end of the Old Testament or toward the end of the Old Testament. It's one of the 12 books that we call the Minor Prophets. We call them the Minor Prophets not because they are less important than the Major Prophets, but because they are shorter, they are briefer. So the Major Prophets would be Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, long books. The Minor Prophets are much shorter. Jonah is only uh, four chapters 48 verses in the Hebrew text. And we're introduced to Jonah the prophet in chapter 1, verse 1, as Jonah the son of Amittai. Though we're not told a lot here about Jonah, we learn from 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, a few things about him. Verse 25 of 2 Kings 14, he restored the border of Israel from Lebohamath as far as the Sea of the uh, Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath Hefer. Now he, at the beginning of the verse, is referring to the king of Israel, Jeroboam I. But Jonah was the prophet, the son of Amittai, during this time. We can see here he's from Gath Hefer, which is a town just a few miles away from the town of Nazareth near the Sea of Galilee. And he is a prophet from the northern kingdom of Israel. You will remember that after the reign of Solomon, the kingdom of Israel was torn in two, that it was split. And the Lord did that as a, as a repercussion or a consequence for Solomon's divided heart. Because he worshipped the Lord on the one hand, but he pursued false gods on the other. God tore the kingdom from him. And it was a divided kingdom in the north, ten tribes. And in the south, two tribes. The north was typically called Israel. Sometimes, you read in your Old Testament, you'll see the name Ephraim. That was also referring to the ten tribes of the north, the kingdom of Israel. The southern kingdom was called Judah, from which David's line continued. So Jonah ministered in the northern kingdom, in the kingdom of Israel. We can tell here from the kings under whom he ministered that he was a contemporary with some other prophets in our Old Testament. Amos, Hosea would have been other prophets around Jonah's time. And so we're able to know that the events of this book, the book of Jonah, took place sometime in the first half of the 700s BC, so almost 800 years before Jesus was born. And in this story, God sends the prophet Jonah to the city of Nineveh in the land of Assyria to warn them of God's coming judgment on them for their wickedness. Unlike the other prophetic books, the book of Jonah focuses on Jonah the prophet, his attitudes, his actions, his decisions. 
instead of his message. And we see a little snippet of his message in chapter 3. But the focus of the book is not the content of what Jonah proclaims. It's about all the activity surrounding Jonah's decisions and attitudes. And as you will see, it is a story filled with irony. Over and over and over again, we will see this this irony. It's part of the, the genius of the text. But understand from the beginning, Jonah is not much of a hero. He is not much of a hero. We find Jonah disgruntled, bitter with the Lord, resentful of his compassion, self-absorbed. In fact, when I meet someone who has named their kid Jonah, I always wonder if they've ever really read the fourth chapter of the book. But don't despair if you have named your son Jonah or you know someone who has. You will see that Jonah is a recipient of God's patience and his grace, just like every other Bible character we would name our kids after, okay? And the book actually ends with a question. It's a question that the Lord himself poses to Jonah But the point of the book is to pose the question to us. Because at the heart of the story of Jonah is the missio dei, a Latin phrase that means the mission of God, the mission of God in the world. We capture the missio dei here at Crossway in our statement of identity to serve and glorify the living God. In Jonah, the Missio Dei is driven by two attributes of the Lord. The first is the Lord's sovereignty, and the second is the Lord's compassion. The Lord's sovereignty and the Lord's compassion. Now, you can find God's sovereignty everywhere in the Bible. In fact, if you are committed to a a real clear understanding of God's sovereignty then you will see it everywhere in the scriptures. But in some places in the Bible, it is more explicit than it is in others. There are some places in the Bible that God's sovereignty is implicit. We see it at work, but the text doesn't necessarily call attention to it. At other places in the Bible, God's sovereignty, his uh, rule over his creation and over humanity is explicit. Jonah is one of those places. Jonah is a book that exalts God's absolute, unwavering rule over his universe. For example, in chapter 1, verse 4, we see that the Lord hurled a great storm. In chapter 1, verse 17, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. In chapter 2, verse 10, the Lord commanded the fish. He spoke to the fish. He commanded it, and it vomited Jonah up. In chapter 4, verse 6, the Lord appointed a plant, and it grew. In chapter 4, verse 7, the Lord appointed a worm. In verse 8 of chapter 4, the Lord appointed a scorching east wind. Over and over and over again, the Lord appoints 
The Lord hurls. The Lord commands. The weather and skies obey him. The seas obey him. Soil and plants obey him. Big fish and little worms obey him. The only thing in the story that has the ugly audacity to disobey and argue with the Lord is Jonah. And yet even this cannot thwart the Lord's purpose, which in the story of Jonah is to show compassion. Which we also see. We see the Lord's sovereignty. We also see his compassion. Jonah highlights the Lord's compassion for lost, rebellious, helpless people. His readiness to forgive, to spare from judgment. The Lord shows compassion for some pagan sailors who have maybe have never even heard of him before. The Lord shows compassion for the people of Nineveh. The Lord even shows compassion for their cattle, their livestock. The Lord, on two occasions, shows compassion for Jonah himself. The Lord is compassionate, abounding in patience, abounding in steadfast love. It is his compassion that becomes the point of contention for Jonah. It's the problem Jonah has with the Lord. It is his compassion. And it becomes the focal point then of the Lord's confrontation with Jonah at the very end of the book. The key text to the entire story is found in Jonah's declaration from inside the fish's belly. Salvation belongs to the Lord, chapter 2, verse 9. Which is why I've chosen this as the title of this study. Salvation belongs to the Lord means that salvation from God's right judgment is found only in him. It can't come from anybody else. Salvation belongs to him. It also means that salvation is an a invincible work of God's sovereign compassion. You could put it this way, to put it more simply. No one else can save, and no one else can stop him from saving. That's what it means when Jonah decries, salvation belongs to the Lord. It is right for God to extend his sovereign compassion. Now let's turn to Jonah chapter 1, verse 1, where we see that Jonah is given an inescapable mission. An inescapable mission. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to this, to this text, Lord, will you soften our hearts and help us to see through this very vivid account what you would call us to as a people. We know, Lord, that you are sovereign and we tremble. And Lord, we also know that you are compassionate and we are, we are grateful. We are relieved. We are made glad because of your compassion. 
In your name we ask for this help. Amen. Jonah is given an inescapable mission. That's how this story starts, and I want you to see this morning six signs that this mission is inescapable. Six signs that the mission is inescapable. Number one, we see the distasteful assignment. We see the distasteful assignment. Chapter one, verse one. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So the word of the Lord that came to Jonah is an assignment. This is a commission. Arise and go is a summons. It's a formal commissioning for the prophet to commit himself to this new assignment, this new mission. Now, unfortunately for Jonah, he is commissioned to Nineveh, that great city. Nineveh is the primary city in the kingdom of Assyria, which is today uh, Iran and Iraq. So if you think about that area of the world, those nations, that would have been the kingdom of Assyria. Its ruins, uh, uh, the, the ruins of the city of Nineveh, actually are directly across the Tigris River from today's city of Mosul. And you may recognize that name as a military hotspot over the last 15 years or so. Jonah's task in Nineveh is to call out against it. That is, to proclaim a, a message of coming judgment. And the reason is because their evil has come up before the Lord. Now, some believe that this is an imagery of their evil is like a, uh, an odor. It's come up before the Lord. I think it's a legal picture that their case has now been prosecuted in the courtroom of the universal and final judge, capital J. And this judge in his court has declared a verdict and a sentencing on the people of the city of Nineveh. Now, how evil was Nineveh? Well, it was filled with idolatry. It was filled with sexual immorality. But especially, Nineveh was known for its violence. The Assyrians were dreaded for their cruelty. You could say that Nineveh is pretty much like any major city today. <laughs> Seattle, Los Angeles, Dallas, any of these cities. Nineveh is a normal, uh, godless city filled with people who don't know the Lord and who are doing what pagans do what fallen human beings do. And there's nothing strange about the Lord declaring judgment on other nations through his prophets. The Lord used or spoke through the prophets of Israel to declare judgment on the surrounding nations. For example, Obadiah. If you look at the book of Obadiah in your Bible, which is just one page, should be just one page, it is a pronouncement of judgment on the people of Edom, the Edomites, which were the descendants of, of uh, Esau. They had attacked God's people, threatened God's people for centuries, and Obadiah speaks for the Lord and declares judgment on them. 
If you look in the book of Habakkuk, you will see that through the prophet Habakkuk, the Lord declares a judgment on the Babylonians, a future judgment. After saying the Babylonians are come, they're going to be my instrument and my hand of discipline for my people, I will judge the Babylonians. And Habakkuk pronounces this judgment. The book of Nahum in the Old Testament is a pronouncement of judgment on the city of Nineveh, probably after Jonah, the the events of the book of Jonah. Nahum would decry uh, the city of Nineveh and promise that God would judge them. So there's nothing, there's nothing surprising about God pronouncing judgment through his prophets against the other nations of the world. What is unexpected is that Jonah is sent to Nineveh. Obadiah was not sent to Edom. Habakkuk was not sent into the heart of Babylon. Nahum was not sent to Nineveh. Jonah is actually commissioned to physically travel and go to Nineveh to make this proclamation. And as we will see as the story unfolds, this is because the Lord gives Nineveh an opportunity to repent. This is why it's such a distasteful assignment for Jonah. But you know as well as I do that the Lord doesn't hand out only easy assignments. (laughs) The Lord doesn't only call us to circumstances that we like, that are comfortable. He calls us to some difficult things at times. This is one for Jonah. And, well, Jonah can't handle this one. And so we see next in verse 3, the disobedient prophet. The disobedient prophet. So the Lord commands to Jonah, arise, go to Nineveh, verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Jonah rises, all right, and he goes. But instead of going to Nineveh, He went down to Joppa, that is today's Tel Aviv. And so instead of going north and east to Nineveh by land, Jonah goes due west to Joppa to get on a boat, probably a merchant vessel, probably Phoenician, since they kind of, they they dominated the Mediterranean Sea during this historical time frame. And he heads for Tarshish which is a port probably in southern Spain, though nobody knows for sure. And we're never told why Tarshish. We don't know why he's headed specifically to that location. But this is unprecedented. I don't know of any other prophet in the Bible who so flagrantly disobeys God like this. Now Moses disobeyed God. You may remember that the Lord had commanded Moses to speak to the rock to provide water for the nation out in the wilderness. Moses gets frustrated, he gets angry, and he strikes the rock with his staff. And because of that, Moses is prevented from ever going into the promised land. So Moses disobeyed, but it's, he did something the Lord told him in the wrong way. It's different. 
We know that the prophet Elijah became discouraged and despondent because of the threats of Jezebel. And that he fled out into the wilderness, afraid for his life. And the Lord had to go out and and comfort Elijah and kind of restore him, remind him of his sovereign care and his purposes, and that nobody's going to hurt Elijah apart from his, his will. And Elijah had to be built back up. But this, given a direct assignment and simply walking in the opposite direction, It's unprecedented. And I think this is a permanent move for Jonah. Jonah isn't just skipping town, hoping this thing will blow over. No, Jonah's leaving. He's leaving home. He's leaving friends. He's leaving family. He's leaving everything. The most important phrase in verse 3 is this phrase, from the presence of the Lord. Jonah is fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Make no mistake, Jonah is under no delusion that he can escape from the all-seeing, all-knowing creator of the world. Jonah knows very well that God sees all and knows all. This is one of the great ironies of the book. Jonah is theologically in tune. He knows this. He knows that he cannot truly hide from God. But you see, Jonah is not running from God's omniscience. He is running from his service. To stand in the king's presence was to be at his call to serve him. This is how the prophets are pictured in the Old Testament. They stand in the presence of the Lord, ready to be dispensed for some assignment. Just as an example, look here at 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 1 and 2. Now Elijah, Elijah the prophet, said to Ahab, king of Israel, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand... There shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him. So here's Elijah. And Elijah is making this point to Ahab. I'm before you, King Ahab, but I actually stand before the Lord, the God of Israel. I am in his court to be sent in his service to say whatever he says. And this is what he says. It's not going to rain until I speak the word. So the Lord's prophets stand before him in his presence, ready to bear divine words to the peoples of the world as the Lord commissions them. Watch. When Jonah heads for Joppa and then Tarshish, instead of Nineveh, he was saying, I will no longer serve you. uh, Jonah is quitting I will no longer serve you. This assignment is not justifiable in my mind. Send someone else, but I will serve you no more. Jonah's retiring. He's quitting. 
He's walking out of the courtroom and going in the opposite direction. This is the disobedient prophet. And I think that we can, at times, in our lives, identify with Jonah. In fact, every one of us, at some point or another, has gone the opposite direction of what we knew the Lord has commanded us to do. But the Lord is not done with Jonah. In verse 4, we see the divine confrontation. The divine confrontation. Jonah gets on this ship, and he heads west out across the Mediterranean Sea. Verse 3. I'm sorry, but verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. (laughs) So Jonah gets on his ship. He crawls down into the hold and falls into a deep sleep. But the Lord takes wind in his hand and like a spear hurls it out onto the face of the sea like you or I might skip a rock across a pond. And he stirs up such a mighty tempest that the ship starts to fall apart. It starts to break up. And the crew starts dumping cargo and praying to their gods for deliverance. Now I think these These sailors, these mariners, these are experienced seamen. So for them to panic to the point of dumping the very cargo that is their livelihood demonstrates just how bad this storm is and how close to perishing they understand they really are. And incredibly, while all this chaos is going on, Jonah is still asleep down in the hold Maybe he took too much Dramamine. Maybe he's exhausted. Maybe he's depressed and despondent because he is running from God. But in any case, the captain is shocked when he finds Jonah sleeping. What do you mean, you sleeper? How can you be sleeping? We're all about to die. Call out to your God. Any of them. Try them all. But notice the word that he says to Jonah. Arise. Sound familiar? It did to Jonah. This is the same word that was the Lord's summons to him in verse 2. Arise. I believe this is the Lord's way of saying to Jonah through the captain of this ship, you are still in my presence. You are still in my service. I reject your resignation. Arise. 
Now, the captain isn't doing this on purpose. He's not saying this. But the Lord is sovereignly speaking to Jonah. He's communicating. Arise. And Jonah goes, oh. He knows immediately this storm has come for him. And I think he knows he can't hide it any longer. Verse 7, we see the disturbing discovery. The disturbing discovery. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And you will notice every time Lord is here in your text, it's in all capitals. This is the name Yahweh, the covenant name of Israel's God. I am a Hebrew, and I fear Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do for you or do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. So, Casting lots is probably not the best way to make a decision, but the Lord commandeers the lot to single Jonah out, which elicits this string of questions in verse 8. Where are you from? What, kind of, what, what nationality are you? They are not trying to get to know Jonah better. They are trying to establish what deity is doing this and how they can appease it. And so your occupation, your home, your nationality, your ethnicity, these things would determine what God or gods you served. And so they're trying to get to the bottom of this. And when Jonah tells them, they're shocked that someone who's in the service of his God would try to flee from his presence. If these sailors were afraid of the storm, which is now getting worse and worse, Jonah's explanation terrifies them. Back in verse 5, these mariners were afraid. Now they are exceedingly afraid. And it could be that they had heard of Yahweh, the Lord. That's possible. The God of Israel who had manhandled the Egyptians, who had driven out the inhabitants of Canaan, who had whipped all of David's enemies, who had made Israel the wealthiest nation because of Solomon's wisdom. It could be that they had heard. They were doing trade in the land of Israel. They were in Joppa. So maybe they had heard of Yahweh. Maybe. But It seems to me that Jonah's Lord, Yahweh, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land, shatters their idolatrous, pantheistic, 
polytheistic, many gods worldview. Instead of Jonah saying, I serve such and such, and such the sea god, or so and so the earth god, or uh, such and such the god of the harvest, or the moon god, or the sun god, or whoever it was, Jonah says, I serve the one true God of heaven who created both the sea and the dry land. He created it all and he rules it all. This is a disturbing discovery because they don't have a category for this. And Jonah's God apparently out-trumps all of their gods Because of all their praying and all of their crying out and all of their appeasements have not stopped the storm. But isn't it remarkable that even when Jonah is reluctant, even when he's on the run, his simple testimony about who he is and the God whom he serves has this kind of impact on the thinking of those outside the people of God. This is a sign. Jonah can't get away from his mission even when he's running away from it. This testimony to the truth of who his God is is enough to bring fear into the hearts of these seasoned sailors. Now that they've established what they needed to know, all that's left is what do we do? How can we get back in this Yahweh's favor? How can we get back in the Lord's favor? How can we save our lives? And they assume that Jonah has the answer to that, that he knows the right ritual or the right words or the need for the right sacrifice. What do we need to do? What do we need to do? Jonah knows there's only one solution, and it's a desperate one. In verse 12, we see this desperate solution. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Is there concern for these mariners here on Jonah's part? Maybe. I mean, he could have lied to them. I guess they could have all gone down. But Jonah tells them what the remedy is. Whatever his motives, we see later on that Jonah actually asked the Lord to take his own life. So it may be that Jonah was just saying, just chuck me in and once I'm gone, once I'm dead, then the seas will be calm. I really think that's what is in Jonah's mind, is that he's going to die. That in running from God, watch, in running from God, 
And in encountering this storm, he has forfeited his life. I think that's what's in Jonah's mind. And he's expecting that when they chuck him into the sea, he's going to die. And that will be the end of it. And the seas will calm down. The answer is very obvious to Jonah. You've got to get me out of the ship. But even these pagan sailors who don't know Jonah or Jonah's God don't like the idea of a human sacrifice at sea. This is part of the irony. They have a greater value for Jonah's life than Jonah does for his own. Or value for God's calling. And so they row hard for land. They're like, chuck you into the sea. We gotta get out of here. We gotta get to the land. This guy's crazy. But it's unavoidable, isn't it? The Lord has hurled this wind across the face of the sea. He is confronting Jonah. He had come to claim Jonah. And so they plead with the Lord. They want to make sure that they stay on the right side of this God. And so they plead with the Lord that he not hold them accountable for Jonah's life. Again, here's the irony of the story. You, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. They recognize God's sovereignty. They recognize that he's in charge, that he has caused the storm, and they are compelled to seek him. And they grab Jonah, as I imagine it, two of them grab him by the wrists, two of them grab him by the ankles, one, two, three, over the side of the ship. That's the desperate solution. They have done the only thing they could do and they have followed Jonah's orders, which is also part of the irony, isn't it? Jonah, even in his rebellion, even when running from God, because he is a prophet of God and speaks for the Lord, they are compelled by him and by the circumstances that come with him to obey his message, his directives. Pick me up. And hurl me into the sea. Jonah could have said, Thus saith the Lord, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Again, it's this irony in the story. The desperate solution is God's only solution, which is Jonah has to go over the side. And they do it, regretting, regretting that they need to. But the result is found in verse 16. And it's a surprising one. Results in a distant sacrifice. A distant sacrifice. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. These sailors have gone from being afraid to exceedingly afraid to now fearing the Lord exceedingly this vague fear of a storm has transformed into a very personal fear of the lord they now have a name and an identity to go 
behind the great power and the glory that is being manifest in this storm and in the calming of it. Now, I don't know that this text is saying that they right there on the ship offered up a sacrifice. They probably don't have any kind of livestock on the ship with them to offer a sacrifice. This is probably once they get to land, which would have been as soon as they could, given that they probably chucked all their provisions, everything off the ship trying to survive. They probably get to the quickest port or land that they can. And these pagan sailors offer a sacrifice to Yahweh, to the Lord. They worship him. I don't know if these guys become true converts. Have they ever, if, if they ever come to some greater understanding about who the Lord is, what it means to follow him, to worship him and him only, we would like to think so. We'd like to think that on their next trip to the western shores of Israel, that they started asking questions. But we're simply not told. We just don't know what happened to them. But this much can be said. They have encountered the one true God, and they have responded appropriately. And the Lord is honored and he is exalted as a result of the display of his sovereignty in the storm and his compassion in calming it. And they offer a sacrifice to him. Again, here's this irony. Isn't this the kind of attitude Jonah should have had? Isn't this the kind of reverence and awe? Maybe there's something here for us to think about that those of us who belong to the Lord do what all fallen humans do and we begin to take it for granted. Begin to take advantage. We don't see the glory because we've become so accustomed to it. We take it for granted that God's going to be there, that God's going to provide, whatever it is. Jonah is not awed. He knows the storm has come for him. He knows what the solution is. But these, these guys, they're overwhelmed, they're awed with God's sovereignty, his compassion, his glory. Their response should have been Jonah's. They are beneficiaries, but here's the thing, they are beneficiaries of Jonah's unfaithfulness. Had Jonah gone to Nineveh, they would have never encountered Yahweh, they would have never encountered the Lord. Now, that's not some kind of excuse for Jonah's disobedience. It is simply this, that even through disobedience, the Lord fulfills his saving purposes. It can't be thwarted. He can't be stopped. He is fulfilling it even in Jonah's disobedience. I say this is a distant sacrifice because these men are far from Jerusalem. They are far from the people of God. Like the Ninevites, they are a people far off, not near. God has compassion on those who are far off and not near. Now, I think on the surface... The lessons for us from this part of the story are fairly obvious, aren't they? 
We could talk about don't disobey God. Don't disobey him. Be faithful. You can't run from God. You can't escape him. God will pursue his disobedient servants. God will pursue them. He doesn't let it slide. I think there's even a point here about the consequences of our disobedience for those around us, affecting those around us. As Jonah recognized and even confessed to these mariners, it is because of me this great tempest has come upon you. This is, this is my fault. But what does God intend to do in us through the book of Jonah? It isn't simply some principles about obeying and disobeying God. Those are there. But understand that Jonah represents a people. Jonah represents, in the story, Jonah represents the people of God, the nation of Israel. And the book of Jonah was written to address their wrong thinking and their poor attitudes that were characteristic of them. They had become so smug in the divine blessing of being God's people that they had lost touch with the reality that they were called to be a conduit, a channel, a vehicle for God's compassion to those outside of themselves. So as the book demonstrates through the life and choices of Jonah, it is addressing the audience, it's addressing the people who are reading it, including us. In fact, the question at the end of the book is aimed at us. It's aimed at the readers, not just Jonah. And as you will continue to see over the next few weeks, as the story unfolds, Jonah's understanding that God is sovereign is not the problem. Jonah's problem and ours is not theological it isn't knowing or understanding that God sees all, that we can't run from him, that we can't hide from him. Jonah knows the Lord very well. In fact, how he responds in chapter 4 shows that, God, uh, that Jonah understood very well who the Lord is and how he operated. His knowledge of the Lord and the Lord's ways are very astute. No, Jonah's problem and ours is pride. Jonah is proud. That's why he heads for Tarshish. So what is the Lord doing in the book of Jonah? He is softening our hearts. That's what the Lord is intending to do. He is softening the hearts of Crossway Fellowship to embrace the Missio Dei and to participate in it with joy. Exactly what Jonah cannot and will not do. The truth that salvation belongs to the Lord 
and that the mission is inescapable is not fatalistic. You know what I mean by that? That we could approach this story very fatalistically. That, oh well, hey, if the Lord's sovereign and he's going to do whatever he wants to do anyway, then it doesn't really matter what I do. Or if I accept that, that just makes it like a robot. I don't really make any choices. That's fatalism. This is just all a script and I just... That's a very sinful, fallen response to Jonah chapter 1. But the Lord is patiently calling us and leading us to embrace his mission in the world and to participate in his mission with joy. So if there is a point to be driven home from Jonah chapter 1, it is this, given that we look at Jonah chapter 1 without the rest of the story yet, it is this, humble yourself and be ready to accept whatever inescapable mission the Lord may assign to you. However difficult it may be, however difficult it may be to love those to whom God has called you, but it is inescapable in that God has called you. That's what God is doing through the book of Jonah and especially in this inescapable mission in Jonah chapter one. Let's pray. Lord, we are all much more like Jonah than we would like to admit. For there is, even in us, your people who have been redeemed a flesh that we must battle. And Lord, I pray that you would continue to humble us and, and bring us into confrontation with our own pride, pride that we may not even be aware of at this point, but that you would make those things clear to each of us and to us as a church as we continue to study the book of Jonah. We know that you are patient with us. And we are grateful for that. Lord, thank you for your glory. We thank you that uh, the mission is <laughs> inescapable. And that you have not left things to chance. That you are not wringing your hands and trying to figure out the next move based on all of the rebellious and decisions and failures of humanity. But that, Lord, you have a purpose, you have a plan, and you are working it out in the world. We give you glory and we praise you. And thank you that we can know you. Not only have truth and, and, and theological accuracy and knowledge, but that we can walk with you. We can know your, your heart for people, your compassion for the nations. Lord, be pleased with our worship today. We ask all of these things and proclaim them in your great name. Amen. <clears throat>